you could feel the excitement in the air. A young man with a black briefcase rushes through the Miami airport determined to catch his flight. His name, Glenn Chambers. It had been a lifelong ambition of his to work for God in South America. After learning Spanish and two Indian dialects, finally his God-born desires are fulfilled. He's off to work with the Voice of the Andes broadcasting team. The toughest part for Glenn, however, was saying goodbye to his widowed mother. He left her two hours ago in a puddle of tears. Desperate to send a final note to her, he scoured the floor, grabbed a scrap piece of paper. It was an advertisement ripped from a magazine with the single word Y in the middle. In a hurry and preoccupied, he scribbled his note around the word, folded it, stuffed it into an envelope, and he sent it before he boarded the plane. Between the mailing of that note and its delivery, something tragic happened. The sound was deafening. Although no one was near enough to hear it, ultimately it echoed around the world. None of the passengers in the DC-4 ever knew what happened. They died instantly. That was February 15, 1947, when the Ivanka Airlines flight bound for Quito, Ecuador, crashed into the 14,000-foot-high peak of El de Blasio. Then it dropped like a flaming mass of metal into the ravine far below. While Glenn never arrived back home, his letter did. The note arrived after the news of his death. When his mother received it, this widowed woman fell to the ground and lost it. She finally regained her composure and opened the letter. And then staring up at her was the haunting question in big, bold letters. Why? We live in a world violently marred by the consequences of the fall. And the single most difficult question we face is, why? How do you answer that question? When a package of tragedy drops on your doorstep, when you give birth to a baby with Down syndrome, when you receive a call that your son has been hit by a drunk driver, when you're informed that your wife's cancer is inoperable, when two men dressed in military attire walk up to your door and you can only process the first few words. We regret to inform you. How do you respond when you hear words that need no adjective? Stroke. Miscarriage. Bankruptcy. Incest. Fired. Why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Nothing can fully prepare us for such moments, and few thoughts can steady us afterward. You don't need a pill for this. You don't need a pill for this. You need a theology. A theology I intend to provide from Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. From our text, there are at least three ways to respond to the why question. Today's story opens with three women... The lines on their faces tell the story of three graves. Their eyes sunk in their faces, their souls sunk in despair. Confused, terrified, feeling extremely vulnerable, they all arrive at the same place, a crossroads. Both literally and figuratively a crossroads. These three women represent three different ways of handling pain in life. 
They give us the classic textbook responses to disillusionment and sorrow. This chapter is actually filled with groups of three. There's three women, there's three responses, and there's three conversations. Some people say Samuel wrote the book. I think it was a woman. The entire book is written from a lady's perspective. 52.4% of the book is conversation. Women need talk. I spent all week breaking down these three conversations and midway through the week I'm like, why am I so drained? Then I discovered it's all the talking and the tears and the emotion. Let me introduce these women to you. First, Naomi. She and her husband left Bethlehem 20 years ago in the middle of a national famine. It was a bad move. It was a Moab move. Time flies and it's about the stage where their boys would be getting married. Naomi and her husband enter into a formal agreement with two separate families in Moab to arrange the marriage of their boys to their daughters. You would often seal this agreement by giving a dowry to the father. It wasn't always paid in cash. Sometimes it was given in clothes or cattle. The exchanges made the two young ladies from two different families are likely around the age 15. Arranged marriages do not seem exciting to you, but for these girls in this culture... This is a wonderful thing. They marry Naomi's sons and enter into Naomi's home. She raises these girls. They love her like their own biological mother. When Naomi's husband died, they grieved with her. On the 10-year anniversary of the double marriage, tragedy struck. Both sons unexpectedly died. So we're left with a really old woman and two 25-year-old widows. And they're now starving in Moab, threatened with homelessness, asking, why? And Naomi, in verse 6, heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. How did Naomi hear that, that the Bethlehem basket is again filled with bread? They didn't have cell phones or newspapers. She didn't check Twitter and think like, oh, we got a home. We got food back in my hometown now. But somehow, word came, maybe through word of mouth. These three women leave the graves of their husbands in Moab, and they head to Bethlehem. They travel down three to 4,000 feet from Moab into the Jordan Valley, and then up three to 4,000 feet back to Bethlehem. If they walk six to nine miles a day, the trip would take a week. Naomi's been on this road before. She's seeing familiar sights, road markers she remembers from 20 years ago. If there's background music to this story, it's bagpipes. It's sad. It's death. It's hard. So with the bagpipes playing in the background, we, we read verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. Notice the end of verse 9. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Out in the open, literally without hope, security, and in their minds, a future, these women weep. They are on the ground, tissue scattered everywhere, bypassers gawking at these widows in a puddle of tears. See, when you're broken, it numbs you to your surroundings. Why would Naomi tell her two Moabite daughters-in-law to go back to Moab, a land filled with Chemosh worshippers? 
A Jewish woman, a daughter of Abraham, encouraging two pagan women to worship a pagan god? Warren Rearsby suggested a reason in his commentary. He said that Naomi wanted to go back to Bethlehem, and she really did not want anyone to know that she and her husband had married off their two sons to pagan Gentiles. In other words, I'll cover my sin and save face. You two girls run back to Moab. Naomi, it appears, had no deep concern for their souls. And like Naomi, we naturally tend to lack the fundamental concern for the Moabites around us. Fortunately, God's mission to rescue sinners is not limited by our flaws, failings, and foibles. God will call to himself whom he chooses, sometimes through the most bizarre messengers and unlikely combination of circumstances. Something else is interesting to me. Naomi tells her daughter-in-law laws to, to go back to their mother's house. Now the mother's house is only mentioned three times in the Old Testament. Usually it's the father's house. Go back to your father's house. So this is a rare and unusual occasion. What does the mother's house refer to? It refers to the mother's bedroom, which was a place where marriages were arranged. So she says, go back to the room where I first met you ten years ago where we made the exchange and you became my daughters. Go back there and let your parents find you new husbands. Verse 10, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. If passion will not dissuade her, her daughters-in-law, then maybe cold, hard logic will. Verse 11, Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? That you may become, that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No. Her reasoning is flawless and her argument well packaged and stated. Naomi is postmenopausal. But she says, hypothetically, humor me for a bit. If I'm married tonight, miracle number one, and had sons tonight, miracle number two, would you wait until they were old enough to marry? They would be 15, you would be 40. The argument is pretty convincing. And now the clincher, verse 13. My daughters, it is exceedingly bitter, for, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She says, is it wise for you to stay with someone whom the Lord is against? I'm bad company. I'm a cursed apple. It's pure and simple. The phrase, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, also appears in Exodus 9 and Deuteronomy 2 and Judges 2. There the Lord's hand goes out against his enemy. So in Naomi's eyes, Yahweh has attacked her as his enemy. Verse 14, then they lift up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. She said goodbye. Now we arrive at Orpah's response to the why question. And maybe this is the same as some of your responses. This is response number one. Pick yourself up off the ground and start fresh without ever giving another thought to why. Orpah does the calculation in, in God's land. In Bethlehem, there's no husband, no children, no security. I think I'll take Moab. And she was sad about it. 
She shed tears, real tears. But at the crossroads of life, she chose to go back to paganism, back to Moab, back to her gods. Orpah discovers over the... uh, Orpah uh, disappears over the horizon of the Jordan and the Bible never mentions her again. Notice that the narrator avoids criticizing her. She did the sensible thing. Perhaps she met Mr. Wright, had a pack of children, and lived happily ever after in Moab. The saddest part of Opa's story is that she probably never knew the answer to why. Why her husband died. She held the paper scribbled in Hebrew that read why, but she dropped it and never sought the answer. Some of you have gone through some devastating events. You have been dropped by something that did not work out as you planned. You pondered the why question. But eventually you shrugged it off with a blanket statement like, God would certainly have more friends if he treated the friends he had a little better. The why question has never crossed your mind since that day until now. We've seen Orpah's response. Now let's look at Ruth's response. One we should admire. Response number two. Let your why drive you to have a deep walk with Yahweh. In verse 14, Orpah leaves Naomi, but Ruth clings to Naomi. It's the same expression found in Genesis 2, 24, of a man leaving his father and mother and then clinging to his wife. Verse 15, Noah said, see... Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, now I'm not going to read this. I'm going to put it up on the screen. She said five sentences. I want us to look through each of the five sentences. First, she said, do not urge me to leave you and return from following you. In other words, stop pushing me away, Naomi. I know you're hurt, and I know when you're hurt, you push people away, so just stop it. Maybe Naomi pushed back and said, if you go with me, Ruth, you're never going to have a baby. Ruth says, notice number two, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Wherever the future takes us, I'm going to be by your side. Ruth will leave her nation with all of its comfortable customs and traditions for a different nation with uncomfortable and unrecognizable customs and traditions. Ruth forfeits her citizenship. And by the way, if God calls you, you can leave family, you can leave your job, you can leave the city you love, and you can make radical commitments and undertake new ventures. If you hear the voice of God saying, go. Notice the third thing they say, your people shall be my people and your God my God. We're going to come back to that one in a moment. Let's look at number four. Where you die, I will die and be buried. So Ruth's loyalty is going beyond death. When you die, I will not leave Bethlehem. I'm not going back to Moab. I'm going to be buried in the same family plot. Not even death will come between us. Then notice her last sentence here. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. If she reneges on her promise, she invites the Lord, Naomi's God, to stretch out his hand against her as an enemy. Now, I want to I geek out on Hebrew for a moment, so just, just bear with me. Okay? Ruth is a bit of a poet. She's using something called chiastic structure. And this is a literary technique that shows you where to place the emphasis. 
So notice there are five sentences, but you have sentences that go together. So the first sentence and the last sentence, they go together in the Hebrew. They are verbal pairs. The second sentence and the fourth sentence go together in the Hebrew. They are verbal pairs. And notice they form a a bit of a triangle pointing you to the guts of her speech. The most important statement is in the middle. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Ruth is a Moabite, a member of a hated race in Bethlehem. There was nothing kosher about Ruth. She knew she would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. (laughs) This was the very moment of Ruth's conversion. And her conversion came at the crossroads of why? Ruth is saying, I don't want my God anymore. I want yours. Ruth was a part of a traditional society. Family is more important than anything. And she's saying, I don't want blood. I want grace. And how do you explain her conversion? Some scholars, in fact, quite a few scholars this week I read, they believe it's due to Naomi's witness. I don't think so. But what, what type of evangelizing says, God is horrible. My God has smitten me. Come and follow him. Uh, that's not proselytizing language Uh, most scholars would agree that this is probably the greatest conversion in the Old Testament and here are the implications there are no more Moabite outsiders in light of the cross peoples from Moab and Mongolia Bethlehem and Belarus will all be washed by the blood of Christ this is a little preview of Revelation Uh, skip to verse 22 if you would Notice the text says, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. So the key word is return, is used at least 12 times in the chapter. But my question is, Ruth has never been to Bethlehem, so how can she return? The author is winking at you. All along, this has been her true home. She's coming home to God. And could this be an echo to a greater return? The reunion of Lot's family, i.e. the Moabites, with that of Abraham's line, Israel. Two daughters of God walking into Bethlehem representing two nations of God. This was quite a, a moving speech given by Ruth. Our own responses to Ruth's words are just instinctively to frame them and hang them on a wall. We often quote the words in marriage ceremonies and and get a little choked up by the implications. But how did Naomi respond? Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. Literally, the Hebrew says, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to Ruth. The rest of the walk was silent. We've seen Orpah's response to the why, Ruth's response to the why. Now let's look at Naomi's response to the why. Response number three. Pick yourself up off the ground and spew bitterness. Notice verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. So don't think of Bethlehem as a, as a huge city like you, like you think of Nashville as a big city. Bethlehem was a little village. Like all ancient, ancient villages, it had gates by which one would enter the city. You could easily see who entered and exited. 
So they see her coming in. The whole town is blogging. They're buzzing. Is this really our Naomi? She left so full of life, vibrant, youthful. Now she's 20 years older, but her face has aged 50 years. All her childhood friends run up to her with glee. I can't believe it, Naomi. Naomi quickly fires back with a creative play on her name. Verse 20, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. See, Naomi's name meant sweet. You may remember her husband's term of endearment for her, sweetie pie. And what she's saying here is now you should call me bitter pie. She goes to the DMV to get a license to drive her camel around Bethlehem. And the lady at the counter says, what's your name? She says, first name, bitter. Middle name, old. Last name, hag. Bitter, old, hag. Bitter people are unpleasant to be around. They suck the life and joy out of everything. It's not attractive, and it's not becoming of Christ. When Ruth moved to Moab with her mother-in-law, I'm just picturing her set up her Christian Mingle account, and here's what it reads, 25-year-old widow, words that describe me loyal, hopeful, new convert of Yahweh, Oh, and if you get me, you also get my mother-in-law. Her name is Bitter Old Hag. <laughs> Swipe left. Bruner, a theologian, said, The temptation of the young is lust. The middle-aged ambition and the elderly bitterness. Actually, all three drives are similar and I think related. Ambition is refined lust and bitterness is disappointed lust. Do you, like Naomi, trace your bitterness to the feet of God? Notice that Naomi was not broken or repentant over her Moabite experience. She may have been returning to the Lord's land, but she was not exactly returning to the Lord with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Mara, bitter, was exactly the right name for Naomi now. It was a name with a history. A history of God's people rebelling against his perceived lack of provision for their needs. It was at Mara, with an H, and the wilderness on the way out of Egypt that the children of Israel grumbled against the Lord after the Lord parted the Red Seas and delivered them from just chariots of Egyptians. But all of that meant nothing in the face of their present thirst. Understand that Mara was not just a definitive place of grumbling bitterness. It was also a place where God's grace to grumblers was definitively displayed. God turned the bitter water into sweet. He specializes in this. He'll do it in this book. At this point, there's not even a whisper of acknowledgement in Naomi's heart of her own responsibility in choosing Moab over Bethlehem. And when life is hard, even when the difficulties are a direct result of our own sin, we swiftly attribute our pain and loss to the harshness of God. We lose a job. We don't connect it to showing up late, not doing the job properly, and being lazy. No, we just get bitter at God. The marriage ends in divorce. You don't attribute, attribute it to marrying a non-Christian in the first place. You just grow bitter at God. 
You can't find a group of people that you connect with, maybe in a church, can't find a church that you fit. You don't connect it to not putting yourself out there. You just grow bitter. Notice Naomi, verse 21. I went away full. And the, this is the key word of the sentence, and the Lord has brought me back empty. The, the Lord, that is the Hebrew covenant name of God. So here's what she's saying. You know who did this to me? Yahweh, the God I am in covenant with, he did this to me. Do you ever feel like in life that it was once full, but now it's empty? You started life with people who loved you, and now no one visits you. You don't get a call. Started a job that you loved, and now it's just empty. You used to have a full marriage, but let's just be honest, it's empty. Life has made you exceedingly bitter, and it seems to you that God has a target, and his target is you. Here's a sign that you're growing bitter. When you consider yourself unworthy of love, when you consider yourself unworthy of love, four times Naomi will tell her daughters-in-law to leave her alone and go back home. Surely you don't want to bother with me. Now you peel back the layers of self-pity to see that Naomi has convinced herself that God no longer loves her and neither should Orpah or Ruth. And if you ever reach the point in which you are convinced that God doesn't love you, you are going to find it impossible to be loved by anyone else. Loving God and believing God loves you is actually the foundation for receiving love and, and giving love. But notice the change in verse 22. Verse 22b says, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So the background music changes in verse 22. It's no longer dreary bagpipes. It's no longer, since we're so close to Nashville, country music. My dog died. My Ford died. Propped me up by the jukebox when I die. No, this is ch the beat has changed. There's a little bounce Fullness is about to come. It's late April. The timing is critical. It's providential. There's, there's nothing random here. Barley harvest. What's that? That's hope. God's blessing has arrived. It's a whole new season in Bethlehem. And possibly could it be a whole new season for Naomi and Ruth. This is going to be a good place. A sweet place. A healing place. Chapter 1 starts with a time stamp, and you'll notice that it ends with one as well. Starts with a famine and ends with a harvest. You are to see the big picture. Martin Luther, one of my favorite reformers, used to say that the Bible is the cradle of Christ. And I believe that. Because I believe that, I believe that Ruth is the cradle of Christ. So I want to give you four Christocentric applications from chapter 1. Four Christocentric applications from chapter 1. Here's the first one. You become bitter when you think you are a righteous sufferer. Now, we've already been nibbling at this truth, but you're not the righteous sufferer. There has never been a righteous sufferer. Ever. Never. Not once. Not then. Not now. Not in the future. There's never been a righteous sufferer. Or has there? Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived. He faced 
suffering under the hands of men and ultimately to keep with the theme of this chapter, the hand of God. When it feels like God has become your enemy, just remember that Jesus Christ for a time on the cross became the enemy of God so that you could be called a child of God. So when you're suffering, do not claim your own innocence. Claim the innocence of Christ. Application number two. Faith in the God of the Bible will sometimes mean leaving unanswered questions in the hands of a sovereign God. The colorful writer and author Charles Spurgeon said, When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is a pillow upon which you lay your head. I haven't learned that, but I want to. When I'm going through times that are difficult, I want to pillow my head on the sovereignty of God. William Cooper, spelled Cowper, pronounced Cooper. William Cooper was a marvelous hymn writer. He was a friend of John Newton. John Newton actually discipled him. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, Cooper was also a contemporary to John Wesley and George Whitfield in England and Jonathan Edwards in America. Uh, Cooper struggled with depression and, let me just be honest, a lot of other problems. One biographer said his life seemed to be one long accumulation of pain. He was bullied horribly by older students as a child. He attempted suicide four times. He got the idea from his father, who gave him a book about how to commit suicide. Later, he was engaged to a woman, and her husband broke it off the night before the wedding. He wrote 19 poems to her. You can read the poems, feel the anguish and, and this distress of his soul. Eventually, he was found with a rope around his neck. He was alive, but barely. They moved him to the insane asylum. C.S. Lewis said that mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it's more common and it's harder to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It's easier to say that my tooth is aching than to say my heart is breaking. The insane asylum turned out to be a place of grace for Cooper. It was there he repented of his sins and he trusted Christ. Salvation in the insane asylum. I don't want to desire to embark on revisionist history. I want to be honest with you. There were numerous additional suicide attempts as the viper of melancholy gripped the poet every 10 years, usually every 10th January. Cooper struggled until the day he died. But he wrote a hymn. The title of the hymn is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I want you to hear the lyrics. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take the clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. The next line wrecks me. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour, the bud may have a bitter taste, 
but sweet will be the flower. You can leave your unanswered questions in the hands of a sovereign God. Application number three. The proper response when faced with pain is not to stand and spew bitterness, but to fall on the ground and worship. That's what Job did. Actually, Ruth is kind of like a little mini Job. Job was a righteous man who suffered a lot. He lost his camels, lost his employees, lost his wealth, lost his health. He actually would scrape the boils off of his body with broken pottery. Disgusting mess. He lost his children in death. He lost everything but the one thing he didn't mind losing, which was his wife. She was a nagger. She'd constantly say, why don't you just curse God and die? That's how I know Job was written from a, a man's perspective, and Ruth was written from a woman's perspective. <laughs> Job said, and these are, these are his words here, God has made me a target for his arrows. I'm reading Job right now in just my devotional time. God has made me a target for his arrows. His cruise missiles zeroed in on my life and utterly destroyed it. Now, Job and Naomi said the exact same thing. The difference is Naomi got up from the ground and spewed bitterness. Job tore his garment, shaved his head, all signs of mourning, fell to the ground and worshipped. Job 1.20 I know you may not have the answer to why, but that is when faith kicks in. The gospel answers your doubts that God really has your best intentions at heart. And I'll prove that to you. Against whom did the Almighty's hand truly go out in judgment? Jesus Christ. The cross was the ultimate demonstration of God's love for you. We may never fully get an explanation in this life to satisfy the burning why or soothe the ache of heartache, but you need to remember that God is too kind to do anything cruel, too wise to make a mistake, and too deep to explain himself. Application number four. Read your pain backwards. In English, we read from uh, left to right, in Greek, I used to teach Greek, you read from left to right as well. But in Hebrew, you read from right to left. In Hebrew, you have to read backwards. I, I want to introduce a man to you. His name is John Flavel. He was a Puritan, lived in the 1600s. It's my great-grandfather. I'm, I'm lying, he's not. But it'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Uh, John Flavel has some spunk. And so that's why I nicknamed him Flava Flav. So th this, is, this, is what he, this is what he said. And I'm going to say it twice so you can let it sink in. The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. So you have to read the story backwards to see what God is doing. All right, so you remember at the beginning of our, of our talk, um, you remember the man named Glenn Chambers. Years later, a missionary to South America visited a remote village in Colombia with an unusually large number of believers. Uh, she was puzzled. She hadn't heard of any missionaries who'd spent much time there. Who brought the gospel to you, she asked. The people brought out an old, charred, black briefcase. 
and a Spanish Bible that they had found from a plane crash. She opened the Bible. Inside the cover were the words written, presented to our dear brother, Glenn Chambers. People of the village found the Bible, read it, and God's powerful word did its work, and they were converted. And you'll never guess the name of the female missionary in Colombia. Her name was Ruth. You should learn from Ruth in Bethlehem and Ruth in Columbia to read your pain backwards. I don't recommend Naomi's bitterness, but I do recommend her honesty. Whether you're going through things because of sin and it was the fault of your own like Naomi, or you're going through things that's no fault of your own like Job and Ruth, bring your frustrations to God and ask, why? Jesus did. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had an answer for Glenn Chambers' mother's why. Glenn Chambers' death did have a purpose. People came into the kingdom because of that terrible accident. God had an answer to Naomi and Ruth's why. You're going to see it next week because a baby will be born in Bethlehem. He will save his people from their sins. God had an answer to Jesus' why. His death had a purpose to bring Naomi's and Ruth's and Glenn's and you into eternity with him. We may never know why things happen like they do. We may never know when our trials turn into triumphs. But we do know one thing. We have this certainty. We know who is bigger than all of our questions. And he is faithful. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.